Okay, so last night, Shauna, I watched the newly released, well, newly released in the last couple of weeks, show called The Chair, which is a comedy um, about um, a woman who is newly assigned the chair of her English department at a fictitious university. Um, The lead is played by Sandra Oh, um, and so it's really great. Um, And then on the heels of watching that, I saw the a note you sent me related to imposter syndrome in academia, particularly for women of color academics. And I was thinking about that as it relates to endurance sport and wondering what your thoughts were. Yes, I have been super excited about watching uh, the chair. Um, I've seen the publicity and everything on social media. And part of me was like, I don't know if I want to watch it or not, because that's my day to day work. (laughs) But (laughs) but then on the other hand, too, I was like, I want to see how realistic it is and how uh, much it really portrays what some people experience in academia. And, you know, I see so much. First of all, I've noticed how many academics are in endurance sport. That's the first thing. Maybe we're in endurance sport to deal with academia. I don't know. But also how the imposter syndrome can play a role in both areas, both in academia and in endurance sport. And so I haven't watched the show yet, but I think there's some really good connections that we could make. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So I was really excited to send you that article um, that really kind of depicted what imposter syndrome looked like for women of color in academia. And not to say that other women don't have this type of imposter syndrome, but I do think it's really important for us to think about not only how do we create context for people to feel as if they belong, but also to what's kind of percolating within people as far as what are they thinking when they feel as if they don't belong and what can we do to kind of bolster them and support them? Um, So it's imposter syndrome. I'm kind of afraid of using that word because that really sounds very um, psychological. Mm -hmm, And so I'm even concerned about using that. So I might toggle between imposter syndrome and imposter phenomenon that we've read about, but It's very interesting. I think we can make some connections to endurance sport because I don't know about anybody else, but I always feel imposter syndrome in Mm -hmm. endurance sport, but that's just me personally. Yeah, no, I do too. And I, the first time I ever came across the term was in my PhD program. So I think it's, uh, it's used a lot among PhD students who are kind of developing this academic profile and academic identity and particularly Mm. for women. Um, you know, what does that look like? Where do I fit? Will people think I'm any good? All of that good stuff. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking, I'm thinking back to the Netflix show and there's a funny piece in it because, um, this, uh, the, the chair is saying to this older white woman academic, you know, we, we've got to step up our game. Our enrollments are low. Like we're, we're hanging by a thread kind of thing. And then she says, when was the last time you read your student evaluations? And the older mm. white woman professor was like, Oh, 1987. <laughs> and it just made me laugh because, uh, because I, I feel that, right? And I think it connects to imposter syndrome in terms of, <laughs> you know, yeah. I've, I've spoken to a lot of women academics um, that they are very nervous to read their student evaluations, even if they are excellent, excellent professors, because 
um, there's always one or two that um, have some negative feedback. And sometimes that negative feedback is just not helpful. It's not constructive, right? And then it derails the person. They feel awful for it. And they could have 25 excellent reviews, but that one or two um, that aren't really very helpful or very nice. And I think that that feeds into then where do I fit? And so my connection here is, you know, in terms of reviews of races or reviews of coaches or, um, you know, that mm-hmm. whole asking for feedback on something, which we know doesn't happen enough in endurance sport. We've talked about that with data collection yes. is one of the reasons why people aren't asking for feedback because they're scared <laughs> of what they will hear. And then that's that- right feeds into their kind of like, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not very good. Maybe I should quit and all mm-hmm. of that good stuff that's connected to this imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it sounds like no news is good news type of thing. Like, you know, I don't want to hear anything. And as long as I don't hear of anything, I think I'm okay. Um, and that may not be the case because some people, you know, as we mentioned, some people vote with their feet where, you know, no, they might not blast you in a student evaluation. They may just no longer take your course and tell people not to take your course. Or maybe you're not getting a particular demographic as a coach because you might have had one person who, you know, didn't really have great feedback for you. So they voted with their feet. They are no longer your client. And you probably may not have other clients that look like them or have similar demographics because they voted with their feet. And so, you know, that piece of it, I think, is important, too. But you're right. It's like we don't want to face the music on that. We don't want to have that conversation uh, for fear of what we might get back. And, you know, I think that's what really concerns me about feedback. You, you and I, we love data. You know, for me, I rarely see the feedback as, oh, you're terrible. You're a horrible person or what have you. My thought is, well, if there's not something in there for me to learn from or grow from now, there will be some things you can ignore, but if there isn't something I can learn and grow from, then what's the point? You know, you can be an excellent teacher and still have things to work on. You can be an excellent, you know, athlete and always have something to work on. You know, how many times have we seen, you know, repeat world champions and they finish the race, they may have been a record breaker in the race and they will still look back and say, oh, that transition wasn't smooth. Or I got out of the water behind the time that I thought I was going to be out or, you know, there's always something to work on and critique. And so, you know, that imposter syndrome piece is you know, I'm wondering how we can help people to transition to, through, and beyond it and also be supportive. If you don't feel that way about yourself or haven't experienced it, how can you be supportive of other people um, that feel that way? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, those are, you know, kind of two stations, two two pieces of homework that we can all walk away with is, you know, how can we work through this or help others to work through it? So Shauna and I have had this experience of feeling as an imposter in endurance sports and in academia. And so, um, but not everyone Mm -hmm. has. And so we looked up a number of definitions and we cobbled together um, some words and sentences that we liked. So for folks who haven't heard of this, um, a a generalized definition would be that it's, it's a psychological pattern where a person doubts their skills or their talents or their accomplishments. And it's this Mm -hmm. internalization of fear that you're going to be exposed as a fraud, that you don't belong there. And someone is going to pull the curtain back and say, you don't belong. See, you don't have the qualifications, the skill, the talent, the whatever. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's an internal sense and it can create anxiety. It can prevent Mm -hmm. you from engaging. It absolutely affects your performance, both in terms of the workplace, but in terms of endurance sports. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm thinking... 
I'm thinking about the um, demographic makeup of endurance sports in terms of race directors say that mm-hmm. um, there are very few women and even fewer women of color race directors. So mm-hmm. when you're in um, a profession where you're not represented and you don't see people who look like you very often, and then you get feedback that your race wasn't quote unquote good, or it sucked in this way, right? Um, <laughs> because perhaps people mm-hmm. are comparing you to these other race directors who have kind of dominated the environment. Mm -hmm. then that could really, I think, shake the foundation about whether or not you want to stay, you know, as a race director in that area. And I think that's a very unique experience to people who don't see themselves represented en masse in a particular field. That's right. Absolutely. When you don't see yourself in that field, that's where it can be extremely challenging. And, you know, that kind of feeds into context, you know, it feeds into the context and I'm grateful now that, you know, so many of the numbers of women are increasing and many races, I've seen them publish their numbers to say that, you know, they had more than 50% women uh, at their event, for example, you know, that's really encouraging. And we still need to hold the fact that there may be folks that walk around with feelings of insecurity for their own reasons that may or may not be connected to the context, right? So, um, I was sharing with Lisa earlier, um, one of my fondest memories, this was what, seven or eight years ago now, because I was very, very pregnant with my youngest son, Kendrick. And the Cherry Blossom 10 miler is a really big deal here in the DC area. It's beautiful. Um, for those of us that have allergies, just pop a Benadryl and go run. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, but you pay if you have allergies around here. Um, but it's also, it's hard to get into and you have to get in by lottery, et cetera. And I remember being very heavily pregnant with Kendrick. I was not running that particular year, but I handed out medals that year. And I was standing beside someone else that was uh, handing out medals alongside me. And the overall winner of the race came through. And the first thing that she said when she approached us for her medal was, I hope I did okay. And I'm thinking to myself, I think her slowest mile was like 505 and she was several minutes ahead of the second finisher and the first thing she said was i hope i did okay and that was such a perfect example of wait a minute <laughs> like you're running incredible speeds and by the way she also mentioned that she had the flu like a week or two before that and she still ran just that strong But the first thought was, oh, my God, I hope I did okay." And I'm looking around thinking to myself, there are no other finishers done but you. Like there was no one standing around her when she walked through the metal tent. And so, you know, I think that she kind of embodies what many people feel, regardless of the context. You know, it's beyond the feeling, Lisa, of have I trained enough? You know, I I think it's beyond that. Like I've had. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a couple of races where I feel like I did everything by the letter. I crossed every T and dotted every I. I ate exactly what I was supposed to. I did every training that I, I didn't miss. I think I only missed maybe one training run with like a little three miler, everything else I hit. And, you know, one of my good friends who she's about to do her first 70.3 next month, she asked me, she said, Shauna, when do you, when do you feel like, you can do it. You know, when do you feel like you can finish a 70.3 distance? And I said, I didn't feel it until I I saw the red carpet, quite literally, quite. And I wasn't exaggerating. It was just the, 
I'm just going to keep going until somebody stops me. <laughs> or I'm going to keep going until the sack picks me up. But I'm not believing that I'm going to finish this until I hit the, the magic carpet here. And I don't think that's kind of, you know, I'm not saying that that's a psychological illness, but what I am saying is that when you're in an environment that's new to you, that has support, but it may not have as much historical support as other groups have had, it goes beyond whether you feel like you trained well or not. It's beyond that, I think. I, 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 Lisa, I'm sure you've had situations where you felt like your training was relatively mm-hmm. on point, but still doubtful, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely felt that in my first few triathlons. I mean, my training was, you know, on point for the level of knowledge that I had at that moment in time. But you roll into the transition area and there's all these fancy bikes, right, with the aero bars, which I didn't have. Um, and there is like, you know, because it's a predominantly white male sport, you have all these young, you know, tall, mm-hmm. like well-trained uh, men rolling around in their like pointy alien looking helmets and stuff, you know? <laughs> and so you're standing right. there, you know, with your road bike or actually mm-hmm. my very first triathlon was a mountain bike. Um, and you're like, Oh yeah. Uh, holy mm-hmm. shit. Maybe this was a mistake and I don't belong here. Right. And so mm-hmm. then those butterflies start going and you start to doubt yourself and you start to feel like you've made this tremendous mistake. Um, so, yeah. And then I still, I still sometimes feel that way when I go to like the nationals, the USATH group nationals or a 70.3, you know, cause just, I'm really bad at comparing myself, looking at other people and being like, oh, they look like they're going to do better than me. Maybe I don't belong here. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know, what's, <laughs> what's interesting about everything that you just said is that let, let me flip this on its head a little bit and you let me know what you think. Part of me feels like we shouldn't be surprised that imposter syndrome happens for certain people, especially with certain sports, right? So for example, you and I have talked about this multiple times, how there is an entire mindset, almost an insidious movement that believes the falsehood that Black people can't swim or don't swim. So when you're standing at the swim start, looking over the lake, the ocean, whatever you're about to jump in as a black person, why wouldn't you feel a little tinge of imposter syndrome? Because for some of us, our entire lives, we're, we've heard that we can't do this and you're about to go do it right now. Right. 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 So part of me is almost like, it's kind of like what we said uh, previously a few podcasts ago about mental health, like it makes sense that some of us are having challenges in the context that we're in. It makes sense that some of us might have um, imposter syndrome based on how we have been conditioned, even from birth, some of us, that Black people don't do that, or only white people do this, or only guys run this pace, or, oh, bikes, that's for the boys, or uh, we have been conditioned, many of us, not all, but many of us have been conditioned. And so, when you decide that you're going to do something that your entire culture has told you that you don't do, of course, you're going to feel like you don't belong. Like when, when I tell other people that, yes, I love open water swimming or, you know, what have you, they're looking at me like, oh, I'm doing good to put my face in the shower, much less do what you do as an open water swimmer. So is it, uh, should it be surprising that uh, imposter syndrome is part of our 
enculturation or understanding of the world. I, I don't want people to feel it, but I do understand when they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, your, um, you know, story there makes me think about that concept of stereotype threat that we've talked about before briefly, I think, where there's a stereotype out in the world about a person uh, or a group of people, rather, and um, you belong to that group of people and then you get paralyzed by mm-hmm. not, not paralyzed. That is ableist. You get stuck um, yes. in yes. terms of not being able to engage because you are worried that you will simply reinforce the stereotype, right? Like women Mm -hmm. are emotional, so they're not good leaders. Black people don't swim, can't swim, right? And Mm -hmm. so then you're potentially part of that imposter syndrome is fed by this idea of, well, if I'm going to go out and swim now and I mess it up, then I have just reinforced the stereotype that exists in our (laughs) culture. Exactly. Oh, you really can't swim. How about that? You yeah, really yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually Absolutely. don't think we, we talk about that enough, right? Um, mm. in the, the, that baggage that we bring with us to endurance sports and particularly for marginalized groups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would imagine it's quite prevalent um, in the disability community for, for some people in terms mm-hmm. of their access to sports and people, able-bodied people assuming that they can't do things, right? And so then both wanting to prove that stereotype wrong while also at the same time being nervous that they will prove it right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. feeding into their feeling of belongingness when they look around and they don't see anyone else who looks like them. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I do think that we need to think about that more as athletes, as coaches, as race directors, as industry professionals, when we're setting up programs mm-hmm. and events, um, mm-hmm. about how to, how do you counter that? Yeah, well, and you know, one one group that we haven't brought up, and I'm not putting them or us in the disabilities care category, but I am going to put us in a body image category. I could give you a laundry list of those of us who are formerly morbidly obese people who now are in endurance sport. You know, those of us that didn't do it in high school, didn't, you know, do any type of sport in college and we came to endurance sport later on in life. And as a result, I mean, my, my first marathon that I ran, I had lost my first like 80 pounds. And so it's, how can I say, I I think that's another group to consider too, is that, you know, especially when I was really, really small, right before my first 70.3, et cetera, there are a lot of people who were new friends of mine through endurance sport who, you know, their perception of, of me was, oh, well, Shauna's always been that size or Shauna's, you know, always had that ability. And I'm like, nah, five years ago, I couldn't have ran a mile straight if you gave me a million bucks. And so those of us who are formerly obese people and this myopic view of, you know, there are some of my friends who are extremely fit endurance sport folks who are formerly obese that still walk into a store and look for the double X shirt when they actually need the medium. Like those um, carryovers still happen in endurance sport as well. Um, mm. it's, th- those are pieces to the puzzle as well that we haven't brought up yet, but I think it's something to be considered. How many us, of us are formers, you know, never an athlete, never thin, never will be thin. And we come to a new place of fitness, um, rather than maintaining fitness. This is a new place for many people, a new planet in and of itself. 
Yeah. So it's that new setting, right? Both in, mm-hmm. in terms of body size and then the level of body shaming you do or do not experience anymore. And then um, being in an endurance sport environment where there, you know, there's a particular, like we've talked about before, there is a particular body type that is associated with that. That's so you've, right. got, you've got kind of a lot of stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, your own sense of self and identity development and, people who know you now, but knew you before. And then, you know, those groups. So there's all that stuff is happening for people when they show up to the start line, potentially, if they show up to the start line. That's right. You know, and so Mm -hmm. that imposter, the stereotype threat, the reconciliation of a prior identity with a current identity, um, what people think of you, what you think people think of you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. You know, and I sometimes, I think we lose that, um, Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a group, as as leaders in the sport, we don't necessarily pay attention to all of those elements that are affecting people's ability and willingness to join in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you know, it's I, I love that language um, when we get into that definition a little bit more about um, this is kind of a feeling of that phoniness piece, like. I'm a phony and I'm going to be discovered as not an athlete, not an endurance sport, you know, athlete, not a triathlete, whatever. It's this, I'm afraid of getting caught doing something that I'm unable to do in a setting where I'm not supposed to be. And if y'all could see me, I'm doing air quotes with suppose, Um, you know, this feeling of being caught doing something that we're not supposed to do in a place where we're not supposed to do it around people who are not in the same category that we're in. It's, it's almost like stealing a place when in fact, mm, we don't mm. want people to steal a place because we want folks to feel that they have a place. Um, and so that phoniness piece of it, when I looked at the definitions that really struck me um, and it's affected by a lot of different things. So um, when we looked up some of this information about you know, all of this, it's, it's interesting how Uh, Dr. Pauline Clance, way back in 78, did a lot of research on this, but she also went into creating this tool on how relationships affect um, this feeling um, when it comes to imposter syndrome, what kind of relationships kind of make us feel like we're imposters. And she goes down this list. I won't go through all of them, but some of them we've already talked about Um, when it comes to racial identities, for example. and let me be clear, let me give you all the, the answer to the quiz here. Many of these overlap with endurance sport athlete identities and experiences, right? So family expectations, for example, you know, let's say you enter that race and your family has, you know, been trucking along without you because you've been spending time training and you don't want to not finish because it proves that all that time away from your family was for naught, for example. That could be an imposter syndrome piece. Um, If you have folks that are overprotective around you, whether it's your parents or your loved ones that are like, Shauna, I don't know about you jumping off that that ferry to swim. You know, there are folks that really do care about you and want to make sure you're okay. Um, Whether it's anxiety or depression that tells you that "Uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, Now, perfectionism, excessive self-monitoring. All of that is directly connected to many of us who are type A endurance athletes. We want to hit that exact time on that run. We are always checking our numbers. Everybody lives by that damn Garmin app. 
So a lot of this connects. And so it's, once again, I'm still asking the question, I'm not, should we be surprised that endurance sport athletes have imposter syndrome because the context is almost built for it. It's, it's yeah. almost built yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. And many of us set that bar high purposefully, right? So that we have something to strive for. But then when the bar always feels kind of perpetually out of reach, it then um, can those feelings of I don't belong bubble up. Right. It's, right. it's, you know, and it's, 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 the, it's kind of mixed in with the, I can't get there. So therefore I don't belong. If I belonged, right. I'd be able to get there. Right. Right. Um, right. Like I'm not right. good enough. Um, so it is absolutely, it is connected to self-esteem, but it's a little bit more complex than that. Right. Because it's also about around my abilities are not good enough. I'm not fast enough to qualify for the Boston marathon, which means I don't belong at the Boston marathon. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so if by some right. chance I made it to the Boston marathon, then I would just be perpetually feeling like I don't belong here. And I'm a, you know, I'm out of my depth and look at all these right. people around me. Yeah. Right. And then, um, you're right. Mm -hmm. Endurance sports, like the perfect environment for this to kind of fester for people. Mm -hmm. And then, you, you know, you're layering on those social and political contexts and identities in the way that, you know, who's absent from endurance sport. And that just kind of amplifies this problem, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It amplifies it. And so, you know, for me, I think, you know, I love both sides of this conversation. And, you know, one of the things that is really important to me is, you know, keeping my mind very open because there will be people that we may assume don't deal with imposter syndrome and they do, and people who do suffer with it that we wouldn't assume so. And so both ways, I hope I said that correctly. And so, you know, given that always staying open for people that are self-offering, you know, they're telling you their story. Um, I was sharing with Lisa earlier that, um, that Instagram post about imposter syndrome among academics and so forth. I shared it with a really good friend of mine who is um, a 140.6 finisher and also an academic. And she actually studies um, folks that are of advanced age who are also athletes. And what was really profound about what she responded back, she said to this post, quote, I'm sure this is very helpful for many women and I fully support those who have ever felt as though they don't belong, but that's just not my story. I've never felt or had imposter syndrome. I've been either someone who is learning to be in the space where I've been placed, or I am that space. But as an imposter, never. And she says, God has put me where I'm supposed to be. And so, you know, I thought it was just really interesting that, you know, I want to make sure that we all remember too, that it's almost like the assumption, Lisa, that, oh, well, if that person is a person of color, they're low income. No, right. Many right. are, but not all, right? Or if that person is a woman, then they're not as strong as XYZ. No, not the case for many. And so, you know, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here around imposter syndrome, but we're hopefully, Lisa, putting it on people's radars to pay attention to when it crops up and whether it crops up internally, mm -hmm, <laughs> as far as mm -hmm. personally or externally, and what we can do to continue to support people where they are. Yeah, it's certainly playing into why people do or do not participate in endurance sport. And, you know, I, I like your your friend's comment, and I think this is a great place to end, is where she said that um, 
it's not imposter syndrome for her because that's not something she identifies with or has experienced. She's either learning to be in the space or in what was the second thing was like in the space or I am the space, but Mm -hmm. the learning to be in the space that as a reframe of you're an imposter. No, you're just new to the space and you're just learning to be in the space. Right. And and everyone is new to a space at some point in their life. And everyone has to go through that same learning journey. It's just different. I I really like that language. Um, Mm -hmm. And -hmm. I think that that's kind of a, something that we all can use when we think, when we show up somewhere, whatever context, and we're like, I don't really belong here. Oh my gosh, I'm panicking. Just learning (laughs) to be in the space, just learning to be in the space. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to outspokensummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash Feisty Triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>